0: Hey there, welcome to the Product Hive podcast. On this episode, we're bringing you the informal discussion from Statistically Significant, our user research event. David Moore, Anita English, and Juliet Stinson will be discussing topics like user interviews, the State of User Research 2021 report, pre-production discovery, how to do research when you don't have product or users, as well as research repositories. So now, let's hear the roundtable discussion on user research.
1: Welcome to Statistically Significant. For those of you who haven't come yet, Statistically Significant is a UX research monthly discussion group. We keep it pretty casual. This isn't like a lecture or a keynote. Um, sometimes we'll have a guest speaker who does a little like presentation at the beginning, but for the most part, we just kind of keep it open and we let people in the audience, ask questions and answer questions. And so if you're here, I hope you're okay with that. I may call on you. I love to see people with their videos turned on so we can get that visual feedback from each other as we speak, Um, but no pressure there. Today, we are talking about the user interviews, state of the user 2021 report. Um, I can share out a link for that. But I thought we could talk through that report and see what people's reactions were. If you haven't seen it, you can probably do some Googling and find it more quickly than I'm going to share out the link um, unless Juliet beats me to it. But we'll talk about that. Um, That honestly, will probably, I don't know. That may take up like the majority of the conversation because there's like 60 slides. So if we just go through it, that'll be like a lot of things to talk through. But we also had on the agenda pre-production discovery. Wanted to see if anybody had thoughts on how to do research when you don't have a product or users yet. If you're trying to do things, figure out key insights before you actually have a user base or have a product to work on. And then finally, and this one we almost definitely won't get to, we can talk about research repositories. A tiny bit of context for this um, event. We have been meeting for a few years now, but we just recently got adopted as a member of the Product Hive family. So um, that's sort of our home base. If you want to stay involved in this um, meetup, then uh, recommend joining the Product Hive Slack workspace and uh, joining the Research Practices team, which is where we kind of hang out for the most part. So yeah, that's that's that. So let me find the. Uh, looks like somebody posted this. Thank you, Juliet, for posting it. I'll go ahead and bring up the State of User Research 2021 report. Has anybody had a chance to look over this? I'm curious if anybody has seen this report yet. Well, we'll just sort of be going through it together, seeing if there's any interesting things to talk about. Oh, also, I think we do introductions in the chat now. We used to do like introductions verbally, but we've gotten to the point where there's probably too many people do that. So if you're new or returning, go ahead and drop your name and job title in the chat. Um, Your LinkedIn, if you want to connect with people, I think one of the enticing reasons to join Meetup's groups is to build out your network. So to that end, go ahead and share out your info if you want to connect with people. So yeah, let's look through this report. 450,000 participants in seven countries, 140 plus industries. Oh, here we go, responses. Okay, so it looks like there was 525 responses, so statistically significant. 68% identify as female or women. That's interesting. Skewed female, 52%, 25 to 34 44 different countries, I think skewed, yeah, skewed to the United States. 51% of respondents were from the US, followed by Canada, the UK, Germany, India, Israel, and the Netherlands. So good representation. 68% female, mostly white, 67% white respondents, age skewing towards 25 to 34, and 50% with a graduate degree. How many people, I'm curious, how many people think it's important to, is this something that the UX research community thinks is important? I feel like with UX design, nobody really cared if you had a master's, but it seems to me that in UX research, I feel like a master's and a PhD are kind of more expected. Does anybody have any thoughts on level of education required to be competitive in UX research? No need to raise your hand or anything, by the way. You can just unmute and spew your thoughts. We're not to the point where it's become like vocally competitive around here. <laughs> so feel free to unmute if you have any opinions.
2: Uh More of a thought. I wonder if uh, typically, with a postgraduate degree, you've already done a significant amount of research. Uh, not that it's the type of research that is uh, particular to a specific industry, but you are very familiar with the practices. Um, and and so I would assume that part of that would be uh, maybe driving that. I I wouldn't say I, I come from a product manager more of a product manager world. I, I'm I'm a group product manager at Bluehost, but the 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 UXR um, that we have at our at our company a lot of them are have do have postgraduate
1: degrees but it's a good question I'll ask them. Yeah what what I see I see another unmuting Lelbaum.
3: Yeah hi I'm a user researcher one of the user researcher Brandon is talking oh, about that
1: Lauren, <laughs> Lauren you answer that question <laughs>
3: Um, I think it's more about the knowledge that you have than the degree. I will say that, you know, the degree gave me really specialized knowledge that an undergraduate degree didn't. So, if there was like a way to get that knowledge um, outside of a degree, I think that would be okay as well. Um, but right now, it seems like a degree is the best way to get that skill set.
1: Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And with Brandon as well. Thank you both for your responses. This is a particularly salient point. For- for me, because I just literally finished my thesis defense yesterday. So congratulations to me. Yes. Thank you. I will take applause. Yeah. I feel like, I don't know. I, I actually had, so back to the PM perspective, one of my early mentors said that he thought this is when I was doing UX. He thought that getting a PhD was actually detrimental. He was like, PhDs are like too rigorous and too slow moving and too stuck in their ways and too opinionated. I actually think a PhD is like a negative thing. I, I don't know. I tend to, I tend to think that I mean, when I'm looking over candidates, I think that a PhD or a master's is like just a clear indicator that this is like a relatively intelligent person, right? Like so it's just kind of like immediately adds, I think, a little bit of credibility. That's kind of how I think of it. And then yeah, back to what Brandon was saying, just the fact that like especially if you get like an MS or you do, do like a dissertation in a relevant field, you're gonna be doing like rigorous academic research, likely with some sort of like statistical analysis. And I don't know if that's particularly applicable to UX research. I mean, obviously it is, but like my team, we really don't do any statistical analyses, which is kind of, actually that's something else that I'm curious about. How many, I know, I think, think I, well, I don't know. I don't know if I know the answer. Danielle, I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot. Does your team do any statistical analysis?
4: Yes. um, But it's only because I know statistics.
5: (laughs) (laughs) That makes it easier.
4: (laughs) Well, and I think uh, sometimes I, I just, Tend to have a more quantitative approach to everything, but I've I've known some very capable researchers who didn't have graduate degrees. So I don't know.
5: Yeah, I I got a, a master's and I like to say I failed out of my Ph.D. in statistics. I mean I didn't fail out, but um, it it um uh but I quit. So yeah, the, 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 um, I, and I I think it's uh. I think it helps you, helps ground you in what you should be aware of and how many things you should be aware of. Um, What it also does, though, is it colors you into, uh, if you don't have the practicum with it, uh, you kind of approach things pedantically instead of from a a real world analysis. I know when I, you know, exited grad school, I had a perception of, of what, uh, uh, business research would look like and how it would pair my academic research. And it came, comes nowhere close to that. So, and, and that's okay. But, but yeah. Maybe
2: one idea is that maybe more graduate, those with graduate degrees or, or above are more interested in research type activity. Now I know that's not a general case, but just a thought, <clears throat> when they say research uh, I'm assuming if you go to a graduate type degree, you, you do like the research academic side of, uh, of the equation. So maybe that drives more of that behavior.
4: I can talk about it a little bit from what I've seen. Yeah. So I work for AnswerLab. We're a UX firm specifically, and uh, AnswerLab requires their researchers to have master degrees. So all of us have master's, and then um, we also do um, statistical analyses, um, but we have separate quant and qual teams. So, Please. although it does seem like they're starting to lean towards being more open to those that have done like some kind of boot camp or like other training, I think that just as the field gets bigger and those things get more successful and established, I think it'll start to change.
1: Excellent perspective. All right, let's keep cruising. So, mostly individual contributors, some managers, a couple of VPs and C levels, a few directors. And it looks like only two thirds actually have. User research or UX research in their title. So, more representative of other roles than I expected. But I guess that makes sense if, if like PMs and UX are doing research. Oh, and related to that, nearly 100%, only one third are nearly 100%, 50 to 80% is another third as well. Okay, so still pretty significant research responsibilities.
4: What falls under research, I wonder? Well, <laughs> is like, is I communicating part. research too, or planning or?
1: Yeah, I wonder how that question was phrased. Is my my is my job all research or no research? <laughs> I'm not sure. Right. <laughs> like if I'm just doing people management for a research team, then is that none or everything?
2: <laughs> do they include maybe at the end the questions
1: they asked? How they likely do. Let's see just to show you my whole desktop.
4: I mean, it seems wise. Let's be real. <laughs> yeah. The audience. Well, yeah, the audience. Yeah,
6: exactly. We're researchers. Show right. us your research. Right. We want to see <laughs>
1: <laughs> Salary and experience. One third in their current role for less than a year, close to half between 100 and 150. Over a third work more than 40 hours a week. Oof, don't do that. Work-life balance. One third, one to four, one third, five to nine current job drop off after three to four
6: I was talking about do a random poll of like how long people have been in their
1: positions we do a really (laughs) really inaccurate poll how many people have been in their current position for more than four years I'm curious anybody
4: at the same company is what you're meaning
1: yeah at the same company yeah no Ryan me and Ryan yeah is this detrimental I mean I feel like I've I've had good growth at my current role. So like my job titles are progressing, which is good, but I've been at DigiCert for like almost five years now. Do you think it's a negative thing to stay at a, the same company for
7: that long? I'm
1: curious. I kind of I, I kind of view it as a negative, Not, not, no no offense to DigiCert.
7: I think it's all about your personality type, honestly, Dave. I think, you know, for some people that's just what they wanna do. They wanna find a place they really feel like they fit in and where they get to do the kind of work they wanna do and they just stay there forever, you know? and it's a great fit and for other people they want the variety that comes from working in a lot of different places and i think too it depends on where you settle down i mean i spent the first 13 years of my career in the same company but i had six or seven different job titles you know so I was able to progress and do new and different things so I got the variety even though I was in the same place I worked in two different countries uh, two different states in the United States you know so that that helped you know that I had that variety but eventually it was time to move on even from there so you know I, I've got somebody on my team who worked at a previous company for nine ten years you know just and it's per, partly personality type you know just people who like to stay in the same place if they find something that, that works for them so I think I don't know that there's a
8: universal answer yeah. That makes sense. Great perspective, young. Yeah, I, I would second what Jan said. Honestly, I uh, <clears throat> I was in my first company for six years, and went through three or four roles or job titles. So as soon as I left, I mean, I I, I took a huge leap when I went to my next company. It didn't really matter because I had all the experience. So it'd be the equivalent of you know being a middle level designer and jumping to a director at your next company because to me, it's, it's either or, right? Like it's, if you love the culture of a company, in my mind, there's no point leaving it as long as you have the autonomy to grow and the mentorship. And I think there's a lot of advantages. I've seen pros and cons where, um, if someone's really young in their career and they go and try to pioneer on a, on a very small team, like in a startup, a lot of the time it stunts their growth rather than increases it because they have no higher level mentorship to help them grow an unprecedented rate where i think hopping onto a good experienced team as a young professional will just jump start your career like no other thing can but it, you know it's it's that pro and con thing right you can still learn i think there's a smart way to learn and the hard way to learn and you can learn either way it's it's just what flavor you enjoy and if you really like grinding and spinning it up like you said or if you really love a culture and you feel empowered then just keep cruising right to me again there's no right answer right so
1: yeah that makes sense and I think that's such good advice that really resonates with me and I'm seeing a lot of like enthusiastic nodding I think that if you're you're placed with a good team that's doing things really well that just levels you up so quickly yeah
6: well I was going to jump in and say for me that like my mentality is I like always work for companies that i love i really love digging in and staying with them as long as i can the only reason i ever leave companies is when like the opportunity for growth has just been like like i've hit a ceiling and i'm just like okay there's nowhere for me to go and i would love to stay here but i can't move anywhere so yeah for me like it like sucks that it requires like moving companies to change like get a pay raise or like get a promotion in most of the instances where i have to leave but yeah i'm someone that loves to stay somewhere and i will stay as long as i can but the limitations have just been in my experience that the company is like we can't give you a, any further promotions like someone would have to like quit above you or yeah for pay raise stuff but
1: I have to perform a coup just take over this <laughs> Yeah, that resonates with me as well. I think, like, yeah, for me, it's the same thing. Kind of where, like, as long as I feel challenged and like I'm learning, like I'm getting the chance to progress and grow and stretch myself, and like I feel satisfied. But I do, simultaneously, I do worry about the perception, just because I hear pretty frequently that, like, when you get to like a really long stint, people people I think do wonder, like, why were you? Why are you at that job for so long? And like, there's good explanations, but there's good answers to that question, but I feel like the question comes up. <laughs>
3: So we've talked a lot about the advantages of staying, and what are some advantages of leaving? Uh, we've talked about you know higher salary, higher position, uh, more growth. Um, are is there an, are there any other advantages to leaving that we haven't touched on yet?
5: Being different flavors, I, I you know I, I almost always encourage uh, uh, new people that I hire. <laughs> this is going to sound terrible because it it costs me as their manager, but to To come in and actually experience a few really good uh, departments around and experience it early on your career so that you can can experience uh, the different flavors and, and, and be able to ferret out good and bad organizations. And so it, uh, it, it always costs me when somebody comes to me that I'm managing and because I, I support them in that, but it also means then I have to replace them. And that's unfortunate too. That's, I think like, I don't know
1: that, that approach to management though, I think is really healthy in terms of like, I mean, you're going to have a great relationship with those team members while they're working for you, you know, if you really invest time in their career growth. So that's, that's awesome. Um, but yeah, to second what Ryan's saying, like, I think that for me, just like seeing how a different organization operates and the things that work and that don't work, this is kind of just echoing what you said. But that is to me the biggest benefit. Just how like how different like research responsibilities are assigned between like the BI team and the research team is like always interesting what methods are employed and focused on how they prioritize things, all of that, like, and being able to like, I don't know, I almost feel like staying at one organization for, for so long, I'm, I'm learning how to do things one way really well, but that's not the only way to do things. Right. So I, I love being able to like, at least be exposed to different processes, processes, process. Yeah. That would be my thought.
8: <laughs> I just had a thought based off of kind of what Ryan was saying. And I, I, I think it's extremely valuable for, for people to have the chance to explore different teams and companies, uh, not only to see what values they align with in terms of if you think of product management, right? There's like sales led orgs, product led orgs and kind of these visionary led orgs, right? And kind of seeing what flavor you really resonate with early on in your career is is really valuable. Um, And the other thought there is, I've seen this happen a lot of, as I would define it as Stockholm syndrome with uh, professionals where they end up in a company and that's all they know. And they start to feel like that's the norm, or that's kind of the benchmark for the rest of the industry. And I I say that because I, I stepped into a company and after a few months, I'm like, wow, this company really stinks. Like, <laughs> I don't align at all with anything that's going on. And it feels really oppressive almost. And then I would talk to younger designers where that's their first company. And they'd chat with me and they're like, this is, this is the best company, you know, that, that I've ever worked for. And I love these guys. I'm like, how many companies have you worked for, you know? Because you can get into that Stockholm Syndrome in terms also of your value in the industry right where i I think juliet was talking about this about you know leveling up within your within your company and at some point in time typically you'll hit a ceiling and that could be for a variety of reasons right whether it's staffing or budgets or you know, whatever it is, team dynamics. But I've seen designers too, where they're like, "Oh, well, you know, I'm getting paid this much, and I I feel like I'm being treated great." And I'm like, "Guys, interview with one other company, and you'll find you could go forty percent up from where you are. You know, and they just don't even realize it because they haven't taken the time to even look around, right?" So, yeah, I always try
1: to encourage people to even if you're not looking for a job, just be interviewing, stay sharp when it comes to like your interview skills, and stay informed as to what's out there. Danielle, did you want to add to that?
4: All I was going to say is, as a chronic jumper myself, I start melting at two years, apparently. Um, I For me, it's the stage of business. I love this certain stage of the business growth journey. And once they grow up, I don't want to be there anymore.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you got to kick them out of the nest at some point, right? <laughs> oh, earnings. 100, 250, one third of respondents. Wow, twelve percent making less than twenty five K per year. Albert, we gotta get these people interviewing at other companies. That's and that's not enough money.
6: Is this all full time people?
1: That's a great question. I, I would imagine I think I mean 25k has got to be close to like minimum wage, right? Like, well, no, that's not true. That's like that would be like no. yes, but still it's
3: it's possible that some of these people who answered are students. And yeah. in that case, they'd be working part-time. So it would be less than 24k a year. Yeah. yeah, non-U.S. folks. Yeah. On the yeah.
6: Graph.
1: Oh yeah. Okay, here's it. Here it's broken out by region. Oh
6: okay. Yeah yeah. You see all the non-U.S. is way skewed low. Years of experience versus salary.
1: Okay. Work longer, make more. Good. Hours per week.
6: Oh my goodness. Yeah, these aren't part-time people. Fourteen percent is less than forty. Wow.
1: I typically don't push over forty hours. I value that work-life balance. I work, effe- I work efficiently for, f- for 40 hours a week. <laughs> <laughs> Research teams, company and team structure. Okay, key takeaways. Fifth of researchers surveyed work at large companies with 10K plus employees. That's a lot. I've never worked for a company that big. They just hurts at 1,500 and that feels huge already. Most common industries were tech, 30%. Finance, 10%. Health, 9%. And design, 7%. That's less tech than I would expect, I guess. Average number of dedicated researchers. That's a lot. We have four. Does anybody have more than four researchers on their team right now? Anybody working for a bigger, bigger organization?
3: Yeah, endurance used to be bigger, but now we're splitting up. Um, so we used to have, we used to be part with uh, all of endurance, so all of the presence brands as well as Constant Contact, and I gotta make a count. We still talk to them, but they're not like officially part of us. Uh-huh. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I want to say nine plus someone to recruit and an intern, although the person who recruited mostly worked for the constant contact side. But sometimes, oh, that's not true. They did a lot of work for Brandon, (laughs) but not for (laughs) me. (laughs) Lots of different industries represented.
1: 6% freelance. Okay. 40% enterprise. 18% startup. Post-Series C, 11%. Okay, cool. Yeah, I guess I'm also surprised by this one just skewing big, but... I guess more researchers work at bigger companies because bigger companies hire more researchers. So maybe that makes sense.
3: Um, also, the tech industry has grown tremendously in the pandemic where other companies have not. That's
1: true.
4: Am I am I weird that I kind of saw a camel hump thing going on there?
1: Yeah, look at that.
4: Yeah, not surprising based on kind of where uh, the needs of a business at different phases, right?
1: Yeah. This is another thing I'm curious about. So I feel like um, I know Sam at mx he's like he's really like pushing for researchers as facilitators how many people here have designers or pms regularly conducting research at their org everybody sort of everybody what is what do you think are the advantages and disadvantages of that approach are there things you like about it things
7: you don't like about it it's a long conversation by itself i suspect but uh (laughs) but yeah for us it's just practicality there's only four of us on our team and we have enough research for more than that so we and we try never to say no so it's it's usually yes but and so it's yes but you're going to have to do some of the heavy lifting and so we try to stay in a review role we try to make sure that we see anything before it goes in front of a consumer or a customer but they may be taking first crack at writing a draft of a survey or a discussion guide or something and they may be doing some or all of the interviews for example once we've got it lined up um just as a practical matter just for bandwidth reasons um downsides obviously are less direct control you've got people who don't spend all their time doing research doing research um so their quality suffers a little bit in some cases you sit in on some of those interviews and you kind of find yourself wincing a little bit from time (laughs) to time. Um, But, you know, on the plus side, more people get uh, directly involved and exposed to the research, which is always a good thing, whether they're just observing or participating. You know, you want research is much more meaningful to people if they've been a part of it. And so we try to make sure we have enough of a role in it to maintain the quality uh and to, to keep them on the right track and that kind of thing and you know they become advocates for it they usually enjoy it they want to do more of it all of those things i would say are good good outcomes from it um and they're learning how to do it better that's the only way you can learn is by actually doing it as well so so that kind of helps so it's a mixed bag in that sense yeah that's good perspective I'm seeing a lot of nodding
1: <laughs> sounds like it's similar experience yeah it seems like you would struggle with like quality control and standardization i like the idea of like those checkpoints, right? Checking in with the team to like confirm that the level of quality is there. Um, Do you do any like training? Do you like try and coach people and stuff on like how to interview well
7: or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we have a weekly session called Research Friday on Fridays, uh, 10 o'clock in the morning here, Utah time. um, Runs for 90 minutes, um, which at first we felt one might be a bit overstretched, but it's our whole innovation center is invited to it about half attend. Um, and we alternate between showing live and pre-recorded customer interviews, sharing out other research findings, and then once a month it's a training session. And so we do some training there, kind of just to do it very broadly, high level. It's not interactive, typically, because of the size of the group—got a hundred people coming—but. Um, uh, we also, then when we're working on specific research projects, we'll, will often, we will do the first interview or two, we'll have them do the next couple, give them feedback after each interview, that kind of thing. So, you know, it happens at a couple of different levels and we're always trying to find ways to do it better, but, but that's kind of where we are today. Very
1: cool. Love it. Research Fridays. It's fantastic. Good internal branding.
7: <laughs>
1: research process, planning and recruiting. Over half of people said that their company does research at every stage of the product lifecycle cycle from pre-design post-launch. Six percent of people are last minute planners who start planning for a research session just a few days in advance. Nearly a fifth of people said they only ever do research with their own users. Well, we definitely do research at every stage of the product lifecycle, but we don't we don't last minute plan very often. And we also do like hallway usability sessions. For testing of interaction patterns. When in the product cycle does your company conduct research?
3: David. I feel like, yeah. Um, Who do you do the hallway usability tests with?
1: If it's just to test the interaction pattern, then we'll just grab anybody who's available, which means pinging people via Slack. If we're worried about, like, Con, like conceptual knowledge, we'll grab people from the IT department who sort of match our like user. And then if it's like, I mean, there, there, there's like kind of a sliding scale between like, okay, we're, we literally just want to know if this dot menu makes sense to the average person versus like, is the multi year plan going to confuse people who are familiar with SSL certificates? Like, if it's just the interaction pattern, then it's anybody. If it's sort of halfway between those two points, then maybe the IT people will do. If it's the extreme of like, okay, we really need to know what the like customers like. Mental model is like then, we'll book it with actual users, um, and I guess that's just usability testing. I think all other research we do with just users, yeah. Everything else kind of like relies on an understanding of like our actual users, like behavior and attitudes. So all the other stuff we do. How about other people? Other people doing guerrilla user testing, of any kind.
7: We have designers that will do it as often a first step, just to kind of gut check something that's brand new before they put it in front of consumers or customers, And ask three people, you know, what they think about something, get their first impressions. I don't know. To me, design is a process of whittling, right? It's like start super broad and you're trying to narrow down to the final solution. And often you can get a good chunk of whittling done with a very short uh, guerrilla bit of testing, kind of like, oh, okay, nobody gets this. I've got to fix that, you know, that kind of thing. So it can be helpful there.
3: How would you do guerrilla testing if everyone at your company is relatively tech savvy? Because it's a tech company like Bluehost. I'm asking the question about me. Um, uh, When most of the people who are signing up for the product are brand new to technology or relatively new to technology.
1: That's a real challenge. Like, yeah, yeah, if the average person doesn't know what a DNS record is and everybody
8: at Bluehost does that's a challenge any thoughts i'll open this up i mean i think the whole point of grill testing is just that raw kind of i guess it's just really raw and broad so something we've done before is <clears throat> when i worked downtown we just went to the city creek food court and just snagged people as they were eating lunch and whatnot and that was an easy way to get like a really broad range of people who aren't don't fit you know a like a specific knowledge bias or things like that. Um, another thing is, you know, we try to look, even inside of a company, you might find a spread of tech savviness. Like we tend to look at things from, from the lens of like research, product and design uh, perhaps. But if you maybe go to people in facilities or people in customer support, like different areas of the company, <clears throat> there's opportunities to, to kind of hit those as well, and really, grill is fun because you could literally just march out the front door and go snag people. I mean, it's it's pretty, pretty accessible testing. Yeah, we could do it more. You
1: have to snag people from six feet away with a mask on.
8: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: Hi, I'm not going to come closer than six feet, <laughs> but can I shout some questions in your direction? <laughs> can you see these
1: designs. <laughs> That's great, I've um. I've reached out in Slack communities too, right? Just um, tried to, I think there's a dedicated channel in Product Hive's workspace for recruitment um, that you could try. And I've also like bugged friends and family as well. If you, if you want to like, take advantage of relationships without, hopefully without hurting those relationships too much. <laughs> when in the product life, product cycle does your company conduct research? I feel like the, like as the research practice at organizations matures it tends to sort of go from usability testing outwards in both directions where you get in like usability testing seems to me like kind of a staple right Where like no matter where i've worked we always did usability testing but as like research practice matured we went sort of like Before that, to do validity testing, and before that to do like exploratory research and like feature discovery. And same thing with sort of afterwards, like monitoring like analytics and um, in-app feedback after things are launched. That's sort of like something that has come with scale. One question I did have actually that I wanted to post to the group was, how many UX research teams are utilizing analytics? Is that something that your BI team uses um, how many UX research teams are utilizing in-app feedback? Again, is that something that another department is in charge of? Because at DigiSearch, we own analytics and we own in-app feedback. And we kind of use the analytics tool to target people for in-app feedback. But like, I don't think that's maybe typical. And I'm wondering if anyone wants to talk about how their organization divides those responsibilities.
0: I know ours um... We use Pendo, and it is. Let's uh, turn my camera. Here. Um, it's mostly used by the PMs. the The UX team is a little bit less familiar. Um, it's definitely less a part of our our design process. It's more of a kind of business and kind of PM consideration at this point. But we're trying to change that. Nice, that's great perspective. Yeah, we use Pendo as well.
1: I, I have like a love-hate relationship with Pendo. I have a complicated one. Um, anybody else? I'm just curious to hear a couple of perspectives on this.
6: Andy threw up in the chat that um, Adobe, he says that I don't think any of our researchers are using site analytics or in-product feedback forms.
9: So Yeah, maybe I'll just expand on that a little bit, Juliet. Um, it's, it's a bit ironic. We are like a digital experience and analytics company, uh, at least the the folks who are focused here in Utah are part of that business unit that sells adobe analytics a google analytics competitor but for large enterprise and i think we find that the research that we want to engage in is like we we want qualitative insights we want to know why people are behaving certain ways and i think site analytics just doesn't deliver that you're only you know observing these broad patterns and and you just you just can't you can't get the why out of the quantitative data, and as it relates to in-product feedback, our targeting mechanisms are not targeted. They're very generalized, and so the kind of feedback that we get most often is, "Don't give me the survey." <laughs> so, it's, so you know, you you start digging through your in-product feedback submissions, and you find that there's so much noise, you just start to lose faith that you're going to discover interesting things there. So we're, yeah, we're, our research efforts are always these one-off engagements that are planned and prepared, and, and they are essentially devoid of site analytics or in-product feedback.
3: So people who do use um, in-product feedback, how do you get around, don't send me a survey?
1: So we like pretty closely monitor all of our feedback. As it comes in, we send messages to Slack channels and direct it at specific relevant stakeholders and when somebody complains about being surveyed we just put them on a like a blacklist so they never get an in-app pop-up again right Um, we actually get a very low percentage of complaints about our in-app surveys we don't do a ton of like pop-ups we have like some persistent experiences that can be triggered by the user and we do have like a couple that pop up that are relevant to like either the customer satisfaction in the app globally or feature specific. But yeah, when we do see one of those, we just remove that user. We try not to like if we if no like if no one's paying attention to the feedback or if it's not important, we shut it down. So we try to be pretty targeted about where we use that because yeah, you don't want to ruin the user experience in your efforts to improve the user experience, right? So you have to be careful about that because it is annoying. I mean, it's you're getting in the way of their goal achievement. So you have to be really careful about where and when you use that, and ideally you don't like have it just exist forever. How far in advance do you start planning a typical research session? One to two weeks, two to four weeks. Yeah, we kind of fall in this middle area. I think that it like there's like this honestly kind of depends on who the stakeholder is. I find that a lot of times like how far in advance somebody reaches out to me depends on that individual. I'll have a couple of people are like, hey, can you run a survey next week? And I have other people who are like in the next quarter, we're going to need to do a little bit of investigation around this topic.
3: Um, So is this, is this like across the board? Is this like, we need, uh, you know, something that's a quick turnaround versus like we need a discovery project that um, the interviews themselves will last, you know, more than a week.
1: The, the survey responses here or. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Because there's like different types of research that take different amounts of time to conduct. And I mean, I think that there different research requires a different amount of planning. Like if someone wants like a, you know, usability test it's going to last like five minutes in user testing um the you know writing the script doesn't take that long so is it like headway before like in two weeks we're going to want this um even if it only takes a week to do you know or is it like we want this big extensive project let's start planning now um
1: It's a great question. I think they at least have the consideration to put typical in quotes here, which is nice of them. But yeah, I have the same questions you do. I'm not sure. I think that when I think of like a typical research product, I mean, project for me, I think that like, typically we engage with customers. Typically we're talking about like five to seven half hour calls. Typically there's like about a week I need to like meet with the stakeholders, iron out the script, start to identify contacts. And then like a week to schedule and conduct maybe two, and then like a week to do analysis. How far in advance did I start planning it? From like the finish date
5: or from like it begins? Probably a week or two in advance. I agree. Depends on the question you're asking. How complicated is the question? And then how much time, oftentimes the business has to to entertain that question before you've got to make a decision. I, I'm always struggling with what I'd like done versus what there is time to do uh, before I have to make a decision. And, and oftentimes UX or researchers will come back and say, oh, we'd really like uh, months to run this. And I said, well, I'm going to make a decision in two weeks. So whatever we can do in there, I'm Good, bad, or and otherwise, I'm, we're going to make a decision. So, you know, sometimes that's the way it, it crumbles too. So, yeah. You know, highly variable.
1: What percentage of your user research sessions in a year are with your own audience? Customers, users, a panel you own or manage versus outside source participants? Oh, yeah. We never, almost never use a recruiter we really rarely engage with like research firms is that something other people here are doing i know that I, we had one one person i think a couple of weeks ago maybe like a couple of weeks ago a couple of like months ago like two or three statistically significance ago who was just singing the praises of utilizing recruiters and it sounds like a great idea but i just don't have any experience with that does anybody want to speak to that
5: you've done it we do it for really big so uh baseline kind of competitive market landscape research. So, you know, uh, really understand uh, for us, we're in the the lease to own space slash, slash financial services. So we'll dump money to really understand how people are viewing their financial situation and, and do and use outside firms because it would just take too many internal resources to really drive that big of a research pool. To to get a hold of so
1: that makes sense. Just trying to understand the whole market landscape, yeah, It'd be challenging.
7: I'd say there's at least three places that we go outside our customer base. One is in surveys. So if we're trying to understand demand, interest, whatever in something, looking at our customer base isn't great because they're highly conditioned to be interested in certain things. So we'll we'll get go to Qualtrics themselves, which is our survey platform, and they'll get a sample for us, or we'll go to a Lucid or whatever and get it that way. So that's one. Second is. We use usertesting.com for a lot of our testing of digital prototypes and that kind of thing that by definition is not our customer base most of the time. Occasionally we find our customers there too but that's not the intent uh, because we're often again looking for the unprimed consumer who doesn't have a huge grounding in the model that we're in and that kind of thing. So that's the second one and then third when we do and we haven't done any for the past year but in more normal times when we do kind of in-home research with people, our customer base is always a great base to go after because we see how they use our products but sometimes we want wanting to get feedback. It's explicitly from people who use a competing product or people who don't buy in the space and we still want to be in their homes and so we'll go outside and that's the hardest group to recruit because You know, we can't just pay a sample company or whatever. You can use recruiters for that kind of thing. Where before I joined Vivint, we used recruiters sometimes and we've had mixed results with it. Sometimes it's led to really good participants and sometimes it's led to the kind of people that just sign up for everything and and aren't particularly useful. So we've preferred to do kind of social network uh, recruiting there, just kind of using our friends and family as kind of extended networks to recruit people. We often do a screener survey to gauge that people really are interested in the space and have interesting things to say before we'll say there's an incentive and and this is what we'd actually like from you and so on. And, That's, it's tough. It's definitely like pulling teeth to some extent, but it's led to some pretty good results sometimes still.
3: Yeah, we use user testing um, and we make sure that our screeners get you, you know, get us the people we want. And if we don't find them, we immediately stop. We also use a lot of recruiting within our customer base. I'm not sure if it'll continue. We've been using all the customers from the other prisons brands who might be interested and also people from Constant Contact, which I don't know if the Constant Contact thing is gonna stay. And then, yeah, I think that's it.
1: I can't remember who it was. One of our members wanted to set up like a uh, like participant sharing pool where you could volunteer people from your org, to participate in other research projects for other statistically significant members. But I think that kind of like fell through, but it still seems like a good idea. Um, one thing we've done, because recruitment is a challenge for us. We do want to get better at it. That's one of kind of our goals for 2021 is to improve the recruitment process. But one thing we've done that I thought was a step in the right direction that helped out was we just sent out like a general recruitment survey. So we kind of listed all like the possible like features that might be relevant. Event to test all, like people on and like listed some attributes that we might potentially want to segment on and just ask people if they were willing to participate in future research projects. And we just kind of like launched that preemptively. So we had this like pool of people who had already said like, yeah, I'm interested in doing user research for you that we could use to like contact when we went to send out like emails for, you know, booking interviews.
3: One other thing that might help David, we, we've yeah. been using Craigslist um, and I imagine oh. you can use Craigslist from like any city that you want. Yeah. Um, and if, as long as it's like a digital interview. So yeah, if you're looking for like, you know, a specific group of people who want a specific type of SSL certificates, there's no reason not to post in like, a lot of the major cities in that your customers are in
1: nice that's a great idea i love that i'm gonna to totally use that it's fantastic um i did want to reserve a little bit of time we've got through about half there's like 60 slides so i'm not gonna make it quick absorb everything as i zoom through it there we learned it all you can go through the rest of that curious to hear drop in research practices if there's anything that stands out to you or that you want to discuss next time but i did want to reserve some time for just questions from new ux researchers or people interested in UX research who have any questions that we can kind of try and have some of maybe our more experienced people feel? Are there any questions from the news?
3: Yes, I have a question. And also, Brandon cannot answer. (laughs) Right. Recently, uh, there's been a push for a much faster turnaround in research. It means cutting a couple of corners here and there or qualifying the results in that, you know, if I'm doing a discovery project, which is what I've just been asked to do, You know, usually I think of discovery projects as anywhere between like eight and 15 people to find a lot of patterns. But for the most recent project that I've been doing, I've talked to six people and only five of which really fit the criteria. And so I've qualified this as I can definitely give you like, here are things that are good, here are things that are bad, but I can't say definitively these are patterns because I've talked to so few people. So if I've seen one problem, like it might be a big deal, it might be a small deal. All I can tell you is that it's a problem. Same thing with a good thing could be like a big success or a small success. I don't know how much of a success that would be. Um, Similarly, another usability test I was asked to do, that but i wasn't able to get as much juicy stuff as i thought might be helpful but it was more important that they get the results sooner to develop the product so like at what point do you push back you know and obviously it's like use your own judgment right but like at what point do you say i think this data is necessary i don't think it's necessary to continue just tell
5: them they're an idiot lauren
3: no, I'm not gonna say that. And Brandon, I think it's I Brandon. think it's fine. Like for this
5: one, I'm fine with it. <laughs> I love I lo- love this problem. and it, it happens everywhere. You're not alone in the world. All right. So um, and I, I think uh, what what I coach my teams to do is first make sure they have a clear understanding of what problem I'm asking them to solve and then the second will be if we get it wrong what are the risks so if i put pressure on my team which i do from time to time probably more than they would like uh, what i try to be is open of, well if we mess it all up because i didn't give you the time to do it what do you guys imagine will go off the rails and then how bad is that? And and if you can articulate that back up clearly to say, well, if I got another 23 people in here, I'd be more or less confident in the discovery effort. Maybe it's worth it. Maybe it's not. But it, but the more you can help quantify for silly executives, the, the risk, uh, it, it will go better for you. That's great advice. Anyone want to add to that?
6: Uh, No, I just had a question to, well, I guess kind of add to it, but um, just to further expand on it. um, What do you guys use as like the threshold for discoverability, like the number of people you're interviewing? Because I've been aiming for like five to seven, but no, way too tiny. Okay. I'm doing it wrong.
3: (laughs) Definitely. That's way too tiny um, because here's the thing, like five, you know, five to eight is good for a usability test because of that graph that we've all seen. In grad school, that's like, you know, uh, diminishing returns after eight. Well, really diminishing returns after is five, but like, you know, go ahead and throw a couple more in if you really want to, because you're just going to iterate on it, you know, and there's going to be more stuff. So like a small number is fine because you're just going to get another small number the next time. So for usability tests, like A plus for five to eight. Um, But in terms of discovery things, I would say like the absolute minimum is eight. And even that's usually too small. And you want to think more like five, like 10 to 15, because you want to have like a more broad spectrum of who the customers are. And they could have, you know, many different facets that you might not be aware of. Like I I can only speak of my projects. But if you give me examples, I'm happy to elaborate on yours. So for example, If you're doing like a persona discovery project, you want to have probably around like 20 or so people, maybe 25, because, you know, we've got small business owners, we've got e-commerce people, we've got bloggers, we've got web professionals. We want to make sure we get a perspective from all of those people to really accurately reflect the audience. And so with a really too small of a sample, you you can't see that. And and similarly, seeing the nuance in a lot of other groups, like I did a recent study on um, people who chose uh, the category other for what type of website, and then again they chose for store, and so I saw people who were they were running their own business to sell um, classes. Uh, online, they were running their business as like a high traffic blog, so they're not really a store, but like they have an affiliate link, so they link to things. So like maybe they're kind of doing it. I saw people who were you know personalities who wanted to sell their own swag, and so if you cut it too small, you just don't see the whole audience.
6: Yeah, that totally makes sense. Mine was just like a very very small feature specifically that I was doing discoverability on. And we only had like...
3: Oh, you said discoverability, not discovery. I'm sorry. Someone else, please answer. Oh, no, no. no. Sorry, no.
6: Actually, Uh, I think think that's great information
1: still. But (laughs) we better cut it off. No, no. I think... think, uh, (laughs) That was great. That was a good answer. I think the question is important. Like, yeah, we, as Jan said in the chat, we could probably define discovery in this context, but that will have to wait until next time because we are at the hour. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. It was great to see all of you. Hope to see you next time. Again, we'll post this in research practices. So if you want to stay up to date, join that channel in the Product Hive workspace. Take care, everyone. Have a good weekend. See you next
0: time. A big thanks to David Moore, Anita English, and Juliet Stinson for the discussion. If you learned some things from their conversation, be sure to share it with your team, or share it on Twitter, and mention us at Product underscore Hive. Sharing these talks is a great way to support Product Hive. As always, be sure to check out all our upcoming events. You can find them by searching for Product Hive on meetup.com. And while you're there, go ahead and join the group so you always get the latest updates. We also have a YouTube channel where you can find videos of all the past talks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feed soon, and we'll see you at one of our next events.